0: They eventually return to dust. Now, when I was a young Christian, I used to look at chapter 3 in the book of Genesis, and I used to say to myself, I've always been told that this is where Adam was cursed. And I never found that. You know what was cursed? The ground. The ground that he came from. And so, we can see here, if we read in Genesis 19, in chapter 3, I mean, you know, verse 19, chapter 3, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We need to understand that when our bodies were, were, were uh, shall we say, condemned to death, that the curse of the ground is saying that everything you are and your nature and what you came from, It is cursed. And we are no different than the ground that we were formed from. And so we are going to die. The question is, how? You know, and it's, well, there'll be a time when the Lord comes back and those people will not die. Well, I believe i you know, that's kind of a debatable thing, really. I mean, being changed at the time when the Lord comes back, and if we don't actually get, uh, go through the funeral home and, uh, it placed into the ground, and this and that. But we would be changed. Now, when we're changed, does that mean the body is just dead? Uh, you know, I don't, It's a distinction that may make no difference. But I will say this. This flesh will not get out of this life. Okay? This flesh remains in this life. It doesn't go beyond this world. When this world ends, so does this flesh. So, that's where the debate is. So, the body is destined to be gone. What we have here, it's going to be in the past one day. We may think about it. Maybe we even may resemble it with our new bodies. I don't know the answer to that. Next question, what happens to our souls? What happens to our souls? Now, the the answer given in this paragraph sounds a little bit like this. Our souls do not die. Now, that, in itself, uses the word die and death in a way that it really means exist. Because when God said, you shall surely die, He did not say, you will no longer exist. It says that you will be separated from His living presence. Now, there is a use of this word that's common today. And someone may say, and i said it before, um, You, I hate, you are, I am dead to you, you are dead to me. Well, that opinion may put a separation between the two, but the death that exists between a holy God and a sinner is truly a barrier that cannot be breached. It is a separation that makes this soul dead to God, and there is no way that this soul can get past that barrier. There's no way. The barrier is placed there by the omnipotence of God's holiness. And and I say that carefully. God is omnipotent and He is holy. His holiness is omnipotent. And therefore the sinner has no hope of being in the presence of God. And so, the soul that does not die means that it will exist. It will exist apart from God if they are unsaved, if they do not have the atoning uh, work of Christ applied to them. In other words, if Christ did not provide righteousness to them in uh, being imputed to them, and Christ did not die for the sins that were imputed to him on the cross, then that soul will forever be separated, but will always be in existence. So, neither do they sleep. Now this may be foreign to some of you, I know that there are some people, uh, I, I've met some people up north when I was living in Ohio. There are some Mennonites, some Amish, they believe that the soul sleeps, and that they use the terminology that the Lord used, perhaps when he was talking about Lazarus. Well, he is not dead, he sleeps. Or the terminology used by Job, you know, when he will sleep in the ground, but one day he will stand with his creator. This is metaphoric language, this is poetic language, it just is another way of saying to us that we that sleep in the Lord, in other words, those who have died physically already, their souls are in the presence of God, but we can, as we relate to each other, we can say that they sleep in the Lord, why would we say that? Because one day they're going to wake up, which means their bodies are going to be resurrected, and then they, their souls will be, will be, I can't speak, their souls will be united with a new body that's been raised to honor. So, the idea of sleep, soul sleep, it is not biblical. Some have speculated that they, they can't imagine someone being dead that long. But I can imagine being in the presence of the Lord, that's what the scriptures will teach us. When we're absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. And these, our souls, return to God who created and gave them. We read in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7 this, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Very simple, very easy to understand. It's a question that many people have, and the answers are quite clear in the Scriptures themselves. Now. The next question, what happens to the souls that are saved and they die? You know, there's, uh, I would imagine that I, you know, people always want to grab those uh, special exceptions. Such as, well, I read that Enoch was translated. And I also read that Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot. Okay, okay, you got two out of about seven billion. Do we want to use that as the great example that, well, we might not die? When the Lord comes back and those who have not died, that will be different than those who have already died and they're in their graves. So the question that I'm asking is that what happens to the souls who are saved and have died in the past? All the ones we read about in the scriptures, all your former family members, all the ones that you know. And if the Lord doesn't come back within 50 years, all the ones that you do know right now. Well, the scriptures teach this. The souls of the saved are received into paradise. Now there's a lot of speculation about paradise. People have written epic poems about it. Uh, People use this word rather loosely. and, uh, and, and, And to be frank, I don't know much about what paradise is like, but I do know some. And why would I know some? Because the scriptures teach some about it. In Luke uh, 23 and 43, we read this where Christ is being crucified. And he says to one of the criminals that were being crucified with him. And he said unto him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, let's make this clear. This man, I believe, was a saved man. Or else the Lord wouldn't have said, you will be with me. And so, I want to make sure you understand, and that people who listen to this online understand, that those who are saved are the ones who have repented and have faith in Christ. You must have a repentance and a severance from your sin. And you must trust Christ to atone for your sin, and to lean on Him, and to rest in His work. Then, you are being, this is what the paragraph that we read about our Confession of Faith, describes it as being then made perfect in holiness. That's That's a phrase that has to do with the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to take a person who has faith in Christ, who has repented from their sins, but then they have the remnants of the flesh still within them, and they struggle and they fight, and they're engaged in that spiritual warfare. Now, those who do not have saving faith are not engaged in the warfare. You may feel like, I just feel really sinful. It seems like I fall into sin all the time. No, you're describing the battle. You're, defi- you're describing the fight. And if you're in the fight, you're on the right side. You see, you're struggling against sin. And that's what this is all about. So who are the saved? They're the ones that are being made perfect in holiness. And they are described as the righteous in this paragraph. And so don't think, well, you have to be a good person to be saved. No, the righteous are the ones that are described as those who believe in Christ and have been given their righteousness and they struggle against sin and they have been given the label of the righteous. So let's not be confused about that. So what is the next par- uh, question? I have the question this. What is paradise like? Because people have really, you know, they, they envision so many different things. What do you think the Muslim thinks paradise is like? You know, they think paradise is what? 70 virgins or something like that and uh, I don't I don't know. I, it wouldn't be paradise with a virgin, I can't guarantee that. I mean, who wants to be a virgin if you have to be someone's slave in heaven? Or something that's a different topic. So, paradise, what is paradise like? Well, I'm going to read some passages from 2 Corinthians to you and it has information in it. So let's just see what it says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll read this to you. For we know that if the tent, now when you hear the word tent, I want you to think of a tabernacle that is temporary. In other words, this body. So Paul is speaking poetically, he's speaking metaphorically. He's he's just like a guy that likes to use his words creatively. He's not talking about a real tent. He's talking about his body. For we know that if the tent, that is, our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay? Now, I'm going to stop right there just for a few minutes. And uh, when I was a young boy, our church, the churches that my mother took me to, always sang this song, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. And then people would sing about this mansion that they are looking forward to. And they want a gold one that's silver-lined. And they seem to say, I want to have this mansion that they can walk into and it's just luxurious. But I have a suspicion that the mansion that we're going to receive is nothing more than the glorified body. And you'll say, nothing more? No, it's going to be much better than a building you could walk into. It'll be a magnificent creation of a, of, of a body that can be in the presence of the Holy God forever and enjoy Him forever. That's better than mortar and brick. It's better than metal. It's better than anything that we would make because God knows better. For, and this, and let's go on to the next verse. For in this tent we groan the longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now, if you don't want know, know what that means, all you have to do is wait for tomorrow morning when you get out of bed. And you say, ah, man, I wish I had a better body than this. You know, it seems like I've, you know, the tread's all worn out. It seems like, you know, the air is low. Everything about your body is going to wear out. But there's something more about wanting the new body. Because this body has a way of not seeing the holiness of God. This body has a way of harboring the enemy of God within it. And it has a way of nurturing a soul that, that has always been accustomed to living in death. And so when we move out of this tent and move into this new body, then all of a sudden, paradise, that's what we're talking about, paradise becomes more realistic to us. A place where Christ can be enjoyed and seen with the complement of a body that's housing a spirit, that loves to be in the holy presence of the Lord, of the one who loved them so much that he died for them. If indeed by putting it on, we may be found naked. In other words, we are not going to be in the presence of God without a body. We will have a body. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. See, I described that burden. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We need a better clothing to be swallowed up with a body that is made in an honoring way to be in the presence of God. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now that's why we read in places like uh, being sealed by the Holy Spirit, which which is an earnest of the, of the great gift. In other words, it is the down payment, we would say sometimes, but in earnest is something that God says, this is my promise, here is a little bit of it to let you know what it's going to be like when the fullness of my presence will be with you when you have your new body. And so having the Holy Spirit dwell within this body is just a taste of a for, of, of the glory divine, okay, a foretaste of that which is coming. So we are always of good courage. It encourages us. We know that while we are at home in the body, that we are away from the Lord. That's why Paul many times says, you know, I long to be with the Lord, but it's probably better for you that I'm here with you. But he longs to be in the presence of God. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body to be at home with the Lord. So, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our main aim to please Him. And so what we're looking at is, well, how does this have to do with paradise? Being in the presence of Christ is going to be paradise. You say, well, I want something more than that. Well, then you're asking the wrong person because I don't know. Because the scriptures are silent on many things. But they do give us very good clues. So, let's continue on with another question. What will it be like when we are resurrected from the dead? Now let me read the passage of scripture to you. And um, I'm going to let you hear the answer. In Philippians 1, verse 23, we read this. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Now here comes the answer. What is it like to be when we are resurrected from the dead? The answer far better. So I need more details. I'm telling you, it's just better. I may not know all the answers that you may have envisioned in your head, but I know this, Christ has promised, and these things are coming our way. Sometimes I'm even afraid to even speculate. You know, sometimes I'm afraid to to do it, but other times I, I let my imagination go wild. Maybe. Maybe the way Christ, when he was on the earth, when he was resurrected, he appeared in a room without seemingly have gone through a door. Sometimes he just appears in different places. Sometimes our speculations say to ourselves, will we be able to transport like in Star Trek? You know, I don't know. It's all speculation. But I'll know this. What we are enduring now, that is going to be far better. Far better. Let's go to the next question then, because I... Sometimes I just can't give you, you know, everything that 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 the world wants to know. And you know, maybe, you know sometimes we want to know because the scriptures are our only authoritative source for these answers. They are. You cannot go to YouTube, you cannot go to people that had visions in their head and you know, write books on Amazon and say, I went to heaven and I came back, and you know, now I sell lots of books about it. The only place we can go is to the scriptures themselves. So with this what happens to the souls of the wicked so the souls you know this is what the paragraph told us and it, it is true the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day now the world may look at that and say well isn't that like punishing them before the judgment day i mean don't they shouldn't they be found guilty first well, there's something that I'm going to cover in the message today that has to do with uh, what the world thinks justice is all about. Because if you go to a court of justice for the world, they will say, justice delayed is justice denied. And that is very true. But if you wanted to say that, you would have to say, well, why, isn't, why is the whole world seems to be living in sin and they're not being judged at all? Just you know, do not confuse the patience of God with injustice. God is not willing that any of his people should perish. And if God, the Almighty One, is not willing that any of his people should perish, they won't. You see, don't put a condition upon that and say, well, we know that, you know, God is just kind of looking at the situation, assessing the situation, and saying, I wish I could come back, but I want a few more to get saved. He does not think like that. He thinks like a God who is saving his people, and he will not lose one. That's what he's doing. So, with that, let's read a parable that the Lord taught. And we know that parables sometimes are more image than they are fact, but they teach a truth that is very valuable. In Luke chapter 16, we read this, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now many assume that this place is paradise and I don't know why it couldn't be considered paradise. Sometimes people uh, commentaries or preachers will say well this is a parable and it may not actually depict the factual truth but it teaches a spiritual lesson to be gleaned from it but it's not um I would say that this type of gleaning would include the fact that the souls who die are in misery if they they do not have Christ. I don't think you can get anything less than that out of it. The souls who die in Christ are being comforted. We cannot get anything less than that. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, they, you know, some may say, well, uh, surely this is just a metaphor. There's not real flames down there. I, I'm not willing to go there. I'm not willing to say that these are not real flames. I would say that, um, but I will say this. The fuel of hell, now this is my opinion. I do not have scripture that says this, this is what, so I'm going to give you an opinion. The fuel that makes hell truly hot is carried there within the heart of the sinner. It's not as though God is putting coal there and makes it hot and He puts you there. What burns, what is going to cause the holiness of God to flare, is the sin that opposes Him, and that is within the sinner himself. And so, He is the coal. And that's why I think one of the reasons why this man calls out and he says, My tongue needs to be cooled. What, isn't he burning all over? What what, what has to do with his tongue? Well, the tongue is set on the fire of hell. Why? Because it speaks for the heart. How many sins have been committed right from the lips of a man and he says the things he shouldn't say and he doesn't say the things he should. And so what is burning within this man? One of the things that caused him to go there. A heart that speaks blasphemies? And what? Let Abraham dip the tip of his finger. In other words, Abraham did the works of righteousness. He did it with his hands, with his mind, with his whole body. Let him take the pleasures that his deeds followed him. Let him take some of the small pleasures and let me just have some relief on me that have committed all these things against God, which centered around the tongue. And so even though this is metaphorical, even though this is imagery involved, it does tell us that people who die in their sin will be in torment. You cannot get any less than that. And the flame and the torment that's being described here is not lessened just because it's spiritual, but even heightened in my opinion. And I have no reason to think that since the soul will be tormented, it doesn't mean that they will not have a body that will also be tormented. It is justice that we're dealing with here. So let's kind of go on. So, that first paragraph, I kind of pulled questions out of it to address what is being stated in that paragraph. And it ends with a very interesting statement. It says, Besides these two places, and what places are there? Paradise and hell. Because right now, we do not have a new heaven a new earth. It is yet to come. Christ will come with that. But now, before the judgment, we have paradise and hell for souls separated from their bodies. The scripture acknowledges none. Now, why would it say something like that? Because there are people who take the name of Christ, claim to be Christians, and say, there are other places other than hell and paradise. There is this anteroom to hell, which we call purgatory. A place where people go to And why? Why would anyone invent such a place as purgatory? Well, I can only speculate, but here's some of my speculations why purgatory is made up by some people. And um, when I say some people, I mean by institutions, by groups of Christians, and in particular, the only ones that I can think of are the Roman Catholics. Maybe the, the Greek Orthodox preach it too, I don't know. But when it comes to the idea that the church has the authority and the power to forgive sins or to write indulgences or to have any type of power over what a soul will have to endure. Because on this earth they can decree and have a pope declare that a person can have less years in a place where their sins are somehow purged because they went there and somehow the blood of Christ did not purge them all because they didn't quite get to a confessional before they died, and then those sins are purged uh, and may be lessened by what the church can do for them. That is all made up by tradition. It is, in my opinion, and I'll be crass, silly. It should not be entertained by the Christian. It should not be even considered, and there are many people who are serious Christians who, I mean, they they, they are serious about their souls that believe it very much, but the Scriptures do not address any other place other than Hades, Hell, and Paradise. So let's go on to the next, next question here, the next paragraph. What happens to our bodies on the last day, the Day of Judgment? Well, now that's the question that's addressing this. You haven't died yet, but the Lord comes back. Okay? That's the, that's the scenario we're dealing with. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we, we read this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And you know what that word means, right? Die. It means your body will die and see corruption and be buried. And then it turns to dust. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So, that's an interesting statement, is it not? That when the judgment day comes, we shall be changed. I I wouldn't mind that. But you know what? Let's just receive what the Lord has for us. If the Lord has a casket for you, bless the name of the Lord. If the Lord wants to come back and change you on that day, bless be the name of the Lord. Because... Frankly, that day might have things in it that you might say, I think I'd rather be in a casket. Who knows what's going to, what that day is going to be like? Because the Lord will be saving His people from a great deal of persecution. So, that's speculation on my part. First Thessalonians chapter 4, where we read this, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will always be with the Lord. And so when a person is changed, they will be with the Lord. Now, the chronology of this can be confusing. But I'll just put it this way. There will be a day of judgment. The Lord, the scriptures teach that. But once we die or are changed, we will never be out of the blessed presence of our Lord. It doesn't mean we won't be judged, but it will mean that God is not going to be confused as to what direction to send you. That's all. He is not confused. Oh, wait a minute. Let's go through the trial first and then I'll decide. That's not the case. When we die, God knows who you are and He will never allow His people to be destroyed or taken out of His hand. So, What about those who have died and are in their graves at this time? When the judgment day comes, what happens to them? And all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies and none other. Now that's taken from our confession. That's not scripture. All the dead shall be raised up in the self-same bodies and none other. In other words, they're going to be raised, but they will be bodies. Okay, they're not spiritual. They're not phantoms. They will have physical bodies. Now, if they're going to be raised up and... You know, we have other scriptures that says we'll want to be raised to honor, want to be raised to dishonor. But they will be raised suitable for their eternal, for their eternal state. So, in Job 19, we read this. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me." This is his concluding statement. He faints within him when he can, can considers these things. So we are going to be changed. Uh, on the Judgment Day, the dead shall rise. Both those who are Christ and those who belong to Satan. Okay? Now that phrase, belong to Satan, now. I'll get into more detail on that in the worship service, okay? So, with that, we, um, will we all have the same type of bodies? Or are these bodies different? Now, the paragraph that we read says this, Our resurrected bodies will have different qualities or characteristics, uh, which shall be united again to their souls forever. And we read the uh, scripture supporting this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It, and it talked about the body. It is sown in dishonor. Now, you know, the word here, sown, it's just, it's a metaphor like you would plant a seed in the ground. You would sow a seed in the ground. And so a body that, you know, a person that dies, they have their body planted into the ground and it is raised in glory. Just like a plant would come back to life. That's the image. That's the metaphor. The metaphor is that the person who is buried is going to come back up. He's going to come back and it will, it was sown in weakness. In other words, weakness is what? It's going to decay. It's going to turn into dust, but it's going to be raised in power because when it is raised up, the Lord's going to give it a glorified body. It will be glorified. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. That's just Paul reasoning with you. Okay? Trust, he says, Paul says, trust me on this. If you had a physical body, you're going to have a spiritual body. A body that will house the spirit that will be in the presence of God. All right, let's go on with another question. What about the bodies of both the unsaved and the saved? We read this. The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor. The bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor, and be made conformable to his own glorious body. So... In Acts chapter 24, we have the words of Paul, and he's talking to a group of people. Um, and so he's kind of making a, um, a response to how they're challenged him. But he'll say, this is, and you'll see the information I'm trying to glean out of this. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, now in the ESV, it has the word way with a capital W. And the way is a, um, is a method of describing the Christian life. And so, he was walking in the way. He was walking in a Christian life. And so, according to the way, which they call a sect, in other words, he's defending Christianity, and he's saying the Jews may call us a sect, but he says this, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and uh, written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. See, there is a sect of Jews that were Sadducees that said there is no resurrection. There is a sect of Jews called Pharisees that said, yes, there will be a resurrection. And Paul often entered these debates. But he is affirming to us that there will be a resurrection. It's not as though the unjust are obliterated. And there are some people that preach that. There are some people that say, if they're not going to heaven, they just cease to exist. No, they do not. They do not just cease to exist. They will be resurrected from the dead. And they will receive judgment. And there will be everlasting hell for those who reject Christ. (laughs) It needs to be stated. It needs to be said. It needs to be understood. In John chapter 5, we read this. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You cannot deny this. You cannot just make up what you want to make up and say, oh, no, no, uh, people are just going to cease to exist. This is becoming more popular these days. This type of teaching is floating to the top in many very large mega churches. It's a it's a sad thing. And in Philippians we read this But our citizenship in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The scriptures are clear. Paul was very clear when he said, We are going to be changed. We're going to have brand new bodies. Now, I'm going to... um, I don't have enough time to do what I wanted to do with chapter 32, but I would like to read it to you, if you don't mind. This is something that that has to do with the very last judgment. So, let me just read this, and then we will be dismissed for our study hour. In chapter 32, concerning the last judgment, our confession is very brief. In other words, there are three paragraphs. There are people that get really into the details about the Last Judgment. They have, you know, divisions. They have different judgments. They have all different kinds of things. But if you want to be true to the Scriptures, you have to say what the Scriptures say and refrain from so much speculation. And so I am very happy with the way our confession expresses this. So let's read this God hath appointed a day wherein He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before Him and the tribunal of Christ, to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. The end of God's appointing day... This day is the manifestation of his glory. In other words, when it says the end, that means the purpose of this day. The reason that this God, that God has this day coming is for the appearing and manifestation of his glory, of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect, and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate, who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life, and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and, and obey not to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments, punished with everlasting destruction, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter, to turn aside, all men from sin, and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, to be consoled and comforted, so will He have the day unknown to men. In other words, he doesn't want us to know so that we can continue to be comforted by it, and that men will be warned and deterred and uh, uh, told to leave their sin, that they might shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come. And may ever be prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come, quickly. Amen. And so with that, we will be dismissed and uh, be ready and prepare ourselves for the worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask now that your word be let loose by your spirit and that it have full reign and free reign in this world. May the gospel be preached freely and effectively today. May Christ be lifted up and may sinners be saved for your glory. We pray this in our Lord's name.